welcome to a new episode of Battle Rhythm. I'm Stephanie Von Latke and Steve Sademan will join us in a moment, but first, here's what you can expect from this week's podcast. We'll discuss our summer research plans. As usual, Steve and I are not on the same side of the Atlantic. We'll then talk about the news and what we've been tracking. We'll then have our Emerging Scholars segment featuring Andrea Lane from Dalhousie, and then you'll have the full interview with General Jenny Carignan, followed by Steve Speeves. Okay, let's get started and check in with Steve. Uh, Steve has recently been to Lisbon, Barcelona, and Paris. He's now back home in Canada, but Steve, what are your hot takes from these research trips? My hot take is that Paris was hot. I was there during a heat wave in a hotel that didn't have air conditioning, and Sciences Po, the facility for the conference, had two rooms, one that was air conditioned and one that was not, and you can guess which one I spent most of my time in. I was in Lisbon and Paris for two different conferences. In Lisbon, there was Ergomas, the European Research Group on Military and Society, a group of sociologists and anthropologists and of other social scientists looking at all kinds of dimensions about their relationships between militaries and their publics, civil relations, but up beyond that, other things such as recruitment, retention, warriors in peacekeeping, it was one of the themes, all kinds of interesting stuff. In Paris, I was at the European Initiative on Security Studies. It's a very young network that's trying to tie together people in Europe who do security studies. I was presenting my research at both places. That was my primary focus, but it was also networking because both organizations may end up becoming partners for the CDSN. They'll give the Canadian network linkages to Europe. And also as they're interviewing some people for the podcast that we'll have maybe this later this summer and deep into the fall. Now, I also went to Barcelona and Normandy for tourism purposes, and uh, we could talk offline about what I learned there. Uh, the Normandy experience, going to see uh, some of the D-Day battlefields, did shape today Steve's Peeves. I do have a second hot take, which is that in my conversations with the Europeans, I was very struck in a lot of the conversations about how they talked about Trump, about his tweets and his deeds being two different things, and they kept on pointing to the fact that the United States is still funding, indeed increasing its funding, for various European defense initiatives in Eastern Europe, in Poland particularly, but also in the Baltics. And they had some truth to that, but my regret was not pointing out that some other stances have been consequential. Specifically, Trump pulling out of the Iran deal has made things far worse, far more troublesome in the Middle East, raising the possibility of war. We came close to attacks while I was there in Europe. I don't know how much of this is their wishful thinking or my ruthless pessimism. Uh, I tend to think that Trump's words matter a whole lot, but I also think that there are a lot of deeds going on that are quite destructive uh, to international peace and security. Uh, but that will be a recurring th question that we can return to in the course of time. Okay, so you've been doing a lot of networking, and sometimes while traveling it can be a little bit difficult to stay on top of the news, but have you been tracking anything going on in Canada while you were away? The big story right now, of course, is Canada and China. Neither of us are China experts, but it's clear that China has given up on its previous strategy of trying to rise in ways that don't ruffle too many feathers, that don't threaten folks too much. Picking on Canada sends strong signals to the world that China is going to be far more coercive, and nakedly so. This is different in the eyes of Europeans and others from when the United States and China get into it, because Canada's reputation is generally not seen as being that bellicose or that deserving of China's ire. So besides the G20, where things didn't particularly go well between Canada and China, we also have stories of Canadian ships being tracked and buzzed, which means that there are low-flying Chinese jets going past these ships, causing them to 
have to react. This is a standard way to annoy another country. Now these ships are transiting in the East China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait, but these are international waters. The problem is that China sees these waters as their own. The problem overall for Canada as we head towards the election is that there's this basic asymmetry. Canada depends greatly on Chinese markets for exports. China does not depend on Canada. It's kind of like Saudi Arabia that way. And I asked the Europeans I met about what they may do about all of this. And their basic answer to this is that they don't want to disturb the beast and get unwanted attention from China, which means Canada is not going to get a whole lot of help from its allies. This may become an issue in the next election, but I doubt that any party will have any great ideas about what to do, because this is a very difficult, very, very difficult problem, and there are no ready solutions to be had. Okay, and while you've been tracking Canada-China diplomatic relations, I have been really focused on the appointment of General Carignan as the next commander of the NATO mission in Iraq, not only because she is an exceptional leader and soldier, but because she is our featured guest. This means she will be promoted from Brigadier General to Major General, and she will be taking command in the fall, as Canada has decided to extend its mission there until November 2020. Steph, you were in Iraq last spring doing research for your book. What did you learn while you were over there? NATO has a relatively small footprint there. It is not a huge mission, and it's quite narrow in terms of scope. It's primarily focused on an advisory function and training. The advisory mission is in Baghdad proper, as NATO officers and the civilian component of the mission are meant with providing advice to the Ministry of Defense in Iraq. And the training component is in three different locations. It's in Baghdad, Taji, and Besmaya. And in all of those three locations, NATO provides training assistance, either in the form of tactical training, like bomb disposal, uh, or uh, training that can be better qualified as uh, military education, which means that NATO military personnel will work closely with Iraqi military academies to identify gaps in the curriculum and look to address these. Now, it's important to remember that NATO doesn't have a lot of resources to offer up. It is a complex ecosystem of missions. There is the US-led coalition, there is the United Nations, there is the EU. So NATO has to carve out a space for itself within that landscape. So the challenge there for NATO and for Canada specifically as the lead nation in command of this mission is to continue to build relationships with people within the Ministry of Defense, is to work closely within the NATO mission in terms of that military and civilian component to continue to really demonstrate the value of NATO training and advice and then to build on progress, which is difficult to measure. How do you measure the outcomes of training and advice? General Danny Fortin was the first commander of the NATO mission in Iraq. He had to start things up from scratch, building his team, receiving plans from SHAPE, the strategic level headquarters of NATO, and Joint Forces Command in Naples, and trying to make a mission out of those plans. General Carignan will take over with these foundations already in place, and I hope to have an opportunity to go back to see how the mission has evolved from one year to the next. Now, the Carignan interview you will hear today is not about Iraq, uh, but we did have an opportunity to catch up with her while she was attending the Kingston Conference on International Security. But before we get to the interview, we have our Emerging Scholars segment featuring Andrea Lane. 
PhD candidate in political science at Dalhousie University. I have sort of two research tracks, and one of them is in what I call mainstream or mainstream Canadian foreign and defense policy. And I have always had a side interest in uh, women in security and uh, feminist defense policy, women in the Canadian Armed Forces in particular. So with my dissertation, I made a little bit of a leap of faith earlier this year, changed my dissertation topic entirely, and I'm now focusing, I'm making my side project my, my main project and looking at um, the experiences of gender and gender narratives in among uh, female combat soldiers in Canada and how that affects um, the potential outcome of the LC initiative to encourage women in peacekeeping. And when we say female combat soldiers, how many female combat soldiers are actually out there? Somewhere between 2 and 3% of the combat arms in the Canadian Armed Forces are women, so we are not talking about very many women at all. And um, I intend to interview women who have left the Canadian Forces who have been in the combat arms just to be able to make my data more reliable. But realistically, it's it's a very small handful of women who are in the combat arms, yeah. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with the LC initiative, I can try. It's kind of a paper initiative, but the idea is to um, seek to have 15% of uh, all troops contributed to the United Nations peacekeeping missions be female, and that is in military and police operations as well. So this is something that Canada is spearheading, um, even though we haven't been particularly active in UN peacekeeping in the past or even currently. Yeah, it's kind of an odd mix of countries that have committed to it. And Canada is leading from behind, essentially, because we are not among the strongest troop-contributing countries in the United Nations. So with the launch of LC, Canada is looking to incentivize other countries who are contributing yes. more troops to yes. missions to send more women, yes. essentially. Yes. So this is part of our larger uh, national strategy on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And it is ripe for a post-colonial critique on how Canada, as a non-troop-contributing country, is essentially trying to get black and brown countries to send more of their female bodies on the United Nations peacekeeping missions. So there's a very interesting racialized critique to be to be done there because Canada thinks of themselves as being quite important in UN peacekeeping, and that is based on our historical involvement, not our current involvement. And if you look at the troops, troop contributing countries that are active now, it's mainly, mainly from the global south. So. There are some problematic kind of colonial overtones to the LC initiative for sure. Mm-hmm. And to UN peacekeeping more broadly, because yes. when you look at the top 10 financial contributors and then yes. the top 10 troop contributors, you definitely see an outsourcing dynamic. Oh, for sure. Of the peacekeeping yeah. work to countries yeah. from the global south. Yeah, we're happy to pay and we're ha- less happy to have our troops in harm's way. So. Right, so I was interested in knowing um, whether or not the sex and gender narratives behind the LC initiative were borne out by the experiences of women in the Canadian Armed Forces who have been on peacekeeping missions before. I went back and looked at four sort of biographies of women combat soldiers from uh, the former Yugoslavia and from Afghanistan and from Mali. I haven't found any from Mali yet, but I'm just at the stages of my research and look to see how they, in their own words, um, saw themselves as women and as as warriors, as combat soldiers, and whether or not their perspectives on sex and gender were the same as we see in the LC initiative. And what I found was, is that the Canadian Armed Forces uh, views itself primarily as a unisex organization. So a soldier is a soldier regardless of sex is kind of the party line. And the experiences of women who've been in the forces, particularly when women were first allowed into combat trades in the late 80s, are that they essentially adopted an asexual or a masculine persona 
to deal with the fact that they were not welcome as women within the ranks of Canadian Armed Forces. And we see this even in Afghanistan, uh, the very familiar to us case of Nicola Goddard. There was an effort to portray her as kind of superseding her sex and her gender, that it was irrelevant that she was a woman and was focused instead on the fact that she was a soldier. And so we have a tension here that the Canadian Armed Forces is asking women to essentially desex themselves to fit into the masculinist institution that is the CAF. But now, with the ELSI initiative, we're asking women to go as women, as peacekeepers, who have this sort of inherent, inherent feminine qualities of peacemaking, of um, coalition building, uh, you know, of, of, of tampering down of aggression. Can we ask those things simultaneously of the same woman? Can one female body simultaneously perform the masculinity required to be an effective soldier within the CAF and to also be, you know, the caring community member um, on a peacekeeping mission? And I suspect that it's too much to ask of women, but that's what my research is looking at. Well, maybe tapping into both masculine and feminine traits can be integrated as part of infantry combat training now. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 if the CAF is actually taking the, the idea of gender seriously, and we see their GBA plus initiatives, and, and there's some sense that, that the CAF is kind of waking up to the idea of gender more generally. But, but if the CAF were actually to take seriously the, the policy behind the LC initiative, that women as women and female bodies as female bodies can now be useful from a military perspective, then that actually has radical consequences for Canadian Armed Forces as a whole, because it means that that very male, very masculinist institution, the androcentrism inherent in the CAF, has to be burnt to the ground and rebuilt with an idea that, in, in as you say, embracing masculinity and femininity for all our soldiers might actually be useful. So I'm not under any illusions that that's actually what's going to happen. I suspect your own research in this is finding that what's happening is sort of a variation of add women and stir or add GBA plus and stir, and that those sort of gender institutional bounds are still being left intact. But I do like to think about what the CAF would look like if they took their own policy seriously, because it has really transformational ambitions inherent within it. And I, I do like to speculate about what it would look like if the CAF took gender seriously. Um, it's just sort of endlessly depressing knowing that they don't. <laughs> well, and that's why the kind of research that you're pursuing right now is so important, because at least in Canada, I feel like there's this openness to engage on this topic that wasn't there five years ago. When 10 years ago I was in, in Brussels asking questions about a different topic, I was doing research on nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. that issue of women, peace and security and integrating a gender perspective and operational planning was just making its way right. into the HQ and into shape. Canada wasn't there yet in terms of really integrating those guidelines mm -hmm. and how they do business within the Canadian Armed Forces. But now I, I do see a genuine interest in tapping into that expertise and that research that's out there. Uh, and so as you develop this, I, I hope that you'll have the willingness to engage and inform those conversations. Mm -hmm since the military is embracing this idea of, of cultural change more broadly. Yes. It's not always questions that they'll necessarily be comfortable in hearing and engaging with, but you know, our role as academics, I think, is very often to ask these uncomfortable questions. For all my talk of masculinities and androcentrism and that kind of thing, I have a, a strong interest in having my, my research be policy relevant, because I think I want my research to be able to inform better policy making in the CAF as a whole. And so 
my hope is that even if 75% of my dissertation is a little bit too feminist and esoteric for the CAF to be able to take seriously, I can point to, you know, here are some concrete gaps, here are some ways in which your current policy does not match this other bit of policy that you have going on the ground, and you will have to do the following things to make this better. And if I have to sell that as something to do with operational effectiveness, as much as I hate to because it, it um, mitigates against the sort of rights-based reasoning for having women in the military, but if there is an operational effectiveness piece that I can pull out of my dissertation and, and, and package to make it more um, appealing to the CAF, then I'm happy to do that because I think we're really, as you say, at a watershed moment in which senior leadership, people on the ground are, are paying attention and our, our allies are paying attention to gender. Either this gets worked out and the, and the military um, as a whole says, yes, this is useful to us, or it explodes, it ends up eggs on everybody's face. Every gender advisor, every feminist academic who's advocated for this is going to be you know, put to one side. So I think we're at a, like a really powerful but potentially um, dangerous moment in which there's a window for gender, a policy window, gender research can kind of step through it, but we have to make sure that um, our, our policy proposals are digestible and, and appealing because otherwise they're just going to be put to the wayside, I think. When do you think that this project will be wrapped up? When will you be done with your dissertation? I'm aiming to have it done by the end of 2020. But that is ambitious, given I'll be teaching full-time for the next year. Thank you so very much oh, for, for coming me. to Battle Rhythm and discussing your research. And I really look forward to seeing the project completed and the recommendations that you'll have to make for the Canadian Armed Forces. Great, thank you. So I'm here today with Brigadier General Jenny Carignan, Commander, 2nd Canadian Division and Joint Task Force East in Kingston. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephanie. In your role as Commander currently, you looked after the readiness of the ground forces. Can you tell me a little bit what your battle rhythm looks like? I usually start the day with uh, with physical training. I like to start with uh, with that. It, it clears my mind, and uh, it's also a way to stay uh, in good health. To me, it's it's a question of. Uh, of being uh, robust and healthy uh, because we 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 work long hours uh, it, it can get uh, very intense in 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 some ways and uh, exercising is a way to uh, to um, to relieve stress and and stay healthy so i like to to start my day like that no matter how busy I am or no matter how much I don't feel like it, I adapt the, the, the workout with the, uh, the schedule and, and how I feel that day. So I, I like to, to start my day like that, organizing what, what I'm going to do either for the few weeks ahead of time or for that day in particular, because I constantly have to readjust my uh, my schedule. And the, the battle rhythm is um, is quite um, unpredictable from from then on, depending on um, some of the topics or issues that may pop up. So I, I look at that, but I save some time 
uh, to look at the longer term. So I, I force the issues with my team. Uh, there's a couple of things that I've set uh, in motion that I want to address in the long term. And so we then I focus on that as well. So the battle rhythm is, is a mix between the most pressing, pressing issues uh, that requires my attention and the longer term issues that also needs to be worked on so that we don't constantly solve the same problems. Right, and can you give us a sense of the types of issues that arise as commander of the Second Canadian Division? So, uh, most recently we, we had to intervene in, uh, in the province of Quebec in response to uh, uh, the floods. Other issues may concern uh, personnel, administration, maybe a, a media uh, crisis, uh, we need to respond to, to certain topics, um, that sort of thing. Okay, and let's talk about the, the flooding because when Canadians think about operations of the Canadian Armed Forces, they may think operations that are happening abroad. But Operation Lentis was a domestic operation in response to a crisis, the flooding. Over 5,000 homes were flooded in Quebec. And you were in the media quite a bit updating uh, Quebecers on the situation. Can you tell me a bit more about how that evolved? So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Operations are not just expeditionary. They are national operations. And, and we've been uh, mobilized more and more in the past 10 years. We've had uh, many more uh, national operations that, that we had to respond to. And it's, it's part of our mandate. That's why we're here and that's why we train. And the skills that we apply on expeditionary operations or in combat are exactly the same as the ones that we use in Canada, uh, but under a different context, of course. For example, uh, for floods, we deployed uh, considering the factor of the threat and terrain, which is exactly what we do when we when we deploy with an enemy present. Uh, the enemy in this case was the floods, and which means that um, we immediately can intervene um, when something goes wrong. So, for example, the um, when one of the dikes uh, gave way in Saint Marthe uh, sur le lac. Uh, our troops were right there and, and ready. We had they basically evacuated with the local police and the local authorities, they evacuate. I can't remember the exact number, but close to 3,000 people in, a, in 15 minutes. The same skills that uh, we apply expeditionary, we do apply in Canada as well. Can you tell us what your role now as a commander of the 2nd Canadian Division, how it might differ from your previous role as Chief of Staff, Army Operations. Mm, yes, very different role, but in the same type of, uh, same category or same type of um, business within, within the Army. As a commander, of course, uh, you call the shot. You explain your vision and organize your team to work towards this vision and, and your, your objectives which in turn are nested within my commander's uh, priorities and vision. So you, you translate your commander's vision um, directly to your formations, which, which should make way all the way to the, to the soldiers. So that's, that's what the commander do, does. As a chief of staff, you are in a staff 
a role which means that you support the army commander in commanding. So you organize the staff to produce the tools and the, um, uh, the products that the commander needs to do his job of, of commanding. You synchronize and you coordinate then the activities according to the, uh, to the commander's intention. So it's two very different roles. You're in charge of the battle rhythm. <laughs> well, as a commander, you have more more influence over your your battle rhythm and, and your and your calendar. Uh, that's 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 a way to see it as well. I also want to talk about your role as the first female general from the combat arms because that's received a lot of attention and it's made headlines. This kind of headline comes with increased visibility for you. How have you handled this increased visibility? In some ways as well, it's a, uh, it's, I, I understand it's a responsibility to make sure that you, you represent this, this model, this possibility, this thing that is possible. I, I didn't have a military uh, model, but I had other great female models that I could look up to and uh, take some um, some hope that it, it's possible to uh, to grow uh, in 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 your own profession and uh, Louise Arbour is, is such a is such a model Margaret Thatcher is another great model uh, so we've we've had lots of models so as a soldier as a military officer I, I understand it's also uh, a responsibility to to, to represent some hope that it's possible to, to get there. However, uh, I also understand that I'm a commander for everybody, and I understand that I can be a role model for men as well, um, and it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a constant privilege to, uh, to represent uh, my team, whatever I do, in whatever I do. So your, your role as a female general has been highlighted a lot because they're rare. So we've spoken about the Eugenia effect or the Carignan effect because you've inspired a lot of women to join the forces and also to stay in the forces. But as a leader, you also have to look more broadly and to inspire the entire armed forces and the army specifically. So what is your philosophy on leadership? What kind of model do you want to set for your troops? To me, uh, leadership is based on uh, on personality and uh, what you believe in, um, the values that you stand for, uh, how you feel about your job, uh, and that's um, that's key to you know how per people perceive you as as you come in as a leader. So I was extremely fortunate, and I'm very thankful to have found a. Um, a passion in this in this military career it that's what keeps me in is is to work with these great teams with these great people uh, people that are very generous of their time um, and that's that's one of my pride is is the quality of the soldiers that we have in terms of uh, leadership um, philosophy per se um, I like to focus on the long term, which means that I will pay a lot of attention at the way we are doing things and not just at what we do. 
um, because if if you break everything in the process of um, getting something done, at what cost do we do that? Um, to me, that's important. So the way we do things is is extremely important. Um, being uh, constructive, I believe that we can build uh, people through their normal day-to-day -day activities. People who are inspired and who like coming to work is, is, is key to the success of an organization. The relationships that people are building, feeling that what they do is important and that they are valued um, and what they do is valued in the process. Um, again, to me, that's something that's very important. So that's that's kind of the things that I like to focus on as as uh, as a leader. It's fantastic. Uh, my other question is introspective as well. So it's not about leadership per se, but asking you to reflect on your career as a whole from all of the deployments you've had in Bosnia, the Middle East, Afghanistan. What are some highlights from your career? In French, we would say les moments forts. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everything. I can't really pick a, uh, a specific thing. Um, a career is a journey. You, uh, you always change through this journey. Each mission uh, has been very different. You are and you always come back changed from a mission because these are very intense moments and when you deploy you're 24 hours a day uh, in very intensely involved into this operation so it's the mix of uh, these experiences I think that that has made the the person who I am today in addition to that my family has been a, a great um, influence as well my I've learned a lot from my children I've learned a lot from my husband and the balancing act of, of uh, constantly uh, making sure that you, know, you remain positive through the through the whole uh, through the whole thing um, so very very much influenced by by my my family life as well so uh, it's it's an amalgamation it's it's a mix of all these experiences that has made the person that I am today you know regardless of whether we would qualify the experience as bad and good the bad experiences are, are part of that journey as well je vais parler un peu en français là. je reconnais l'absurdité d'avoir deux francophones qui se parlent en anglais <rire> et donc, euh, j'ai eu l'occasion de, de vous entendre parler à plusieurs reprises. Vous avez participé à certaines euh, conférences et vous posez tout le temps d'excellentes questions, des questions provocantes. <rire> et donc, je me demande comment est-ce qu'on fait en tant que leader dans les forces armées où les formations sont très conformes, où ils ont un moule, si, on, si je peux me permettre l'expression. Euh, comment est-ce que vous faites pour euh, penser avec créativité? Mm. Je, je pense que c'est euh, l'éducation, euh, c'est euh, ce désir de, de, de vouloir apprendre. Je, je suis toujours en train de lire euh, quelque chose. Je suis tout le temps en train de, de découvrir des nouvelles idées. Comment qu'on fait pour euh, se débrouiller dans un moule qui, qui est relativement conformiste, euh, tra traditionnel? Il faut bien comprendre le moule. Donc, en premier lieu, il faut bien comprendre sa culture et il faut bien comprendre qu'il y, y a 
il y a des moyens d'intervenir pour susciter la, la discussion ou susciter la, 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 pense, la pensée critique et créative. Euh, fait il faut, faut laisser le temps aussi aux gens euh, d'emmagasiner de, ou peut-être d'absorber euh, des nouvelles idées. Fait il faut laisser le temps. Des fois, la première réaction, c'est non. Des fois, la première réaction, c'est je ne suis pas d'accord. Mais parfait, on, on peut être pas d'accord et au fil du temps, l'idée euh, fait son chemin euh, tout naturellement. Ça, ça fait partie, de, ça fait partie de, de la normalité, je dirais, d'entrer de, de, en conflit ou en friction avec diverses idées. Mais euh, c'est important de, de, de constamment euh, euh, s'autocritiquer et de, de, de lire puis d'apprendre à travers toutes nos expériences. Et comme le mot de la fin, est-ce que je pourrais vous demander quelques conseils pour la prochaine génération? En tant qu'éducatrice, moi, j'aime ça encourager les gens euh, à réfléchir à une carrière potentielle dans le monde de, de la sécurité et de la défense. On a besoin d'une relève forte. Et donc, si vous vous adressez à ce public-là, nos jeunes et la relève, quels conseils auriez-vous à leur donner? Moi, je leur dirais de ne pas se laisser intimider par euh, peut-être euh, l'aspect euh, justement intimidant de tout ce qui est sécurité, force de sécurité. Je, je dirais que si ça vous intéresse, allez-y, lancez-vous. Et euh, une, un petit pas à la fois. Un petit pas à la fois. Euh, je pensais jamais être un général un jour et on fait une journée à la fois. Un petit pas à la fois, on se rend compte de, de, de ce qu'on aime, de, de où on veut intervenir, de où on voudrait influencer, on, 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 on trouve notre, notre, notre passion au travers de tout ça. Alors, ce que je dirais, c'est de se lancer, de ne pas se laisser intimider par la chose. En fait, c'est des conseils qui s'appliquent à pas mal plus de monde que juste la relève. Donc, merci beaucoup pour vos pensées sur la question. Puis, merci aussi pour le temps que vous m'accordez aujourd'hui. C'est un plaisir de vous revoir. Ça fait plaisir. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much, General Carignan, for sitting down for this podcast interview. Thank you. My pleasure. Today's peeve is more of a plea than a peeve. It starts with what I did last week. I went to Normandy on a bus tour from Paris. The stops included the Cam Memorial Museum, the Pointe de Hoc, where the U.S. Rangers climbed up a steep cliff and which was memorialized by Ronald Reagan on the 40th anniversary of the battle. I went to Omaha Beach, the U.S. Cemetery next to Omaha Beach, and then the Juno Museum and the beach. And what did I learn along the way? That even the most heroic efforts may not fulfill the objective. At Caen, I bought a, a book about the Forgotten Battalion. It's in the same regiment as the famous band of brothers who eclipsed them. I thought this was a story I'd like to know more about. The intro to this story gives away why they were forgotten, I think. That they had reached their objective, some bridges that they were supposed to hold. But the U.S. Army Air Force bombed the bridges, and so they failed to keep holding the bridges. The Point to Oak story is better known. That these rangers climbed up a sheer cliff in the face of machine gun fire and everything else the Germans threw at them. They got to the top, reached the big cannons they were supposed to destroy, but the four had been destroyed by planes or ships in previous bombardments, and the last two were moved away. So the great heroism? Yes. But the mission itself? Not really completed. What these two stories share in common is that the fog of war is a real thing, that confusion by friends matters a great deal, 
as do the moves by maids by adversary. That what these two stories share in common is that the fog of war is a real thing. That confusion by friends matters a great deal, as do moves made by the adversary. And one cannot be so certain on the battlefield. And this is, of course, not just a World War II problem. This goes way back into history and has continued to the present day. That in 1991, more British soldiers died by misdirected bombs during the Gulf War than by Iraqi weapons. That during the effort by NATO to prevent ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, a bomb hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. That in the Afghanistan mission, some of Canada's first casualties were caused by Americans dropping bombs in the wrong place. We tend to think that modern warfare eliminates these mistakes, so we tend to expect too much from our soldiers, our sailors, our aviators. Mistakes will always happen because of bad intelligence, because of smarter, lucky moves by the adversary, because the weapons themselves don't work so well, or because of bad leadership or even bad followership. There will always be civilians killed in wars, even when they are not the targets. Now, it is not that original to say that war is hard, that stuff happens. But in the age of smart bombs and guided missiles and drones, we need to be aware of the limits of force. So perhaps we should be more wary of using force, more humble about the efficacy of force, and have more empathy for those who are put into difficult spots, and yes, more accountably for those who make the decisions that cause others to earn these medals, these Purple Hearts, these Medals of Honor, these Victoria Crosses. Eisenhower had prepared two letters on the eve of D-Day. One was to declare success, and the other was to take responsibility for a failed invasion. Can you imagine a politician or a general doing that these days? It's hard. So my peeve and my plea is this. Using military force is really hard. And while it seems like the military is the most effective arm of government, it is also the most destructive. It hurts those who deploy force as well as those who are on the receiving end. I'm not a pacifist. I do think that force has a time and place. But diplomacy, however frustrating, does too. Thank you. We'd like to respond to any questions and comments people have, so please let us know what you're thinking about the podcast or what you'd like for us to discuss or if you have questions about Canadian defense and security by emailing us at cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. That's cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Or tweeting at us at cdsnrcds. That's at cdsnrcds. Otherwise, you can keep track of what we're doing via our website, which is www.cdsn-rcds.com. That's again, cdsn-rcds.com. Thanks.